Hello, I'm Kyle Johnson, and this is What Are You Reading?, a podcast devoted to books and the perspectives of their readers. Fans of J.R.R. Tolkien were probably introduced to his work through The Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. However, today my guest and I discuss some of the writer's other works, primarily a set of stories that was not published in his lifetime. Because the conversation is so encompassing, this episode will be part one of two about topics related to Tolkien and Middle-earth. So I hope you enjoy, and please be on the lookout for part two next week. I'm Nick Hool, or Fornost42 on TikTok and Twitter, and uh, I'm based out of Northeast Ohio. And Nick, what are you reading? Today I'm reading J.R.R. Tolkien's Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-Earth, edited by Christopher Tolkien, his son. Okay, great. So what should people know about Unfinished Tales? Yeah, great question. So most people who are familiar with Tolkien's work have either been introduced to it by The Hobbit, which was his book published in 1937, I believe, or The Lord of the Rings, which is a series of volumes of books published in 55 and 56. They were followed up by The Silmarillion, which was published in 1977, a couple years after the death of Tolkien. So it was a posthumous publication. And then Unfinished Tales was published a few years after that. Now, what makes it an interesting book is it's the first in uh, what became a very long series of manuscript histories, I guess you could call them for lack of a better word, which is now titled The History of Middle-Earth. Tolkien had this very interesting writing process of he would write to a point where he got stuck and then he would go back to the beginning and rewrite everything. It's been described as like waves coming in during the tide. While The Unfinished Tales is a standalone text, it's not actually considered part of the histories of Middle-earth. It's a fascinating book in that you can see these insertions of the editor, Christopher, his son, talking about the writing process and talking about why he included what parts of the text he did, and why he didn't include others, and giving context from other writings of, of, at that time, those only handful of other books that were published. What The Unfinished Tales does is provide context for folks. It's creating a depth of knowledge that wasn't there prior to. So with The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, you have a lot of references to other parts of the world that are never given any more context. A great example of this is in Chapter 2 of The Hobbit, Bilbo and the dwarves and Gandalf defeat some trolls. And upon defeating them, they find access to this troll cave. And in this cave, they find Sting, the famous short sword of, of Bilbo and then Frodo, as well as a sword called Orcrist and a sword called Glamdring. And these swords, when they reveal them to Elrond in the next chapter, are revealed to be relics of an ancient elvish city called Gondolin. But we never get context for what Gondolin is in either The Hobbit or other than just an ancient elvish city where great elvish kings lived uh, and fought the goblins in The Hobbit. What Unfinished Tales does is take a page out of the Silmarillion, which, as I mentioned just a moment ago, was, po was published posthumously. Tolkien, in his original attempt to get The Lord of the Rings published, wanted to publish it 
connected to or in tandem with this work he had been working on since really the 19 teens uh, during his his time in the First World War. He wrote some of the earliest writings of Middle Earth from the trenches. Some of these earlier works are quite epic in scale and are very obviously influenced by the time that he spent there and the the loss that he and his friends suffered in some of the worst acts of humanity in that First World War. So Unfinished Tales grows from that, as the subtitle of Numenor and Middle-earth implies. It's covering a wide variety of history. It's broken into three sections, basically. There's the First Age, so it tells two unfinished tales of the First Age, and then it moves on into the Second Age, which for those who are interested, is the time period that the Amazon adaptation, Lord of the Rings, The Rings of Power is taking place. And then Mm. it falls on into the Third Age. And the Third Age is where most of the action that everyone's familiar with takes place. Sounds so expansive. I mean, he's really created quite a world. It's it sounds so imaginative. Yes, definitely. You know, a lot of folks will call Tolkien the father of modern fantasy. And while I think that's true, what he was doing was in many ways fan fiction of ancient mythology. Norse Mm -hmm. and Greek mythology come to mind. There's, There's a pantheon of gods that map very well onto the Norse and Greek mythoses. Despite all of the writing and the extensive writing that he did for most of his life, you know, from adolescence to his death, there's so much that isn't talked about. So we're used to now with, you know, fantasy authors like George R. R. Martin, for example, who will describe in detail over 15 or 30 pages what people are eating and drinking and how the, the joke is among many people is like, what is the tax policy of Westeros? What's the tax policy of Middle Earth or Gondor specifically? And Tolkien wasn't interested in that. But what he was interested in is was creating a believable universe. So mm-hmm. th- that's that's what gets gets me right in my heart, right in my gut. What he would do a lot of times is make references in his actually published during his lifetime texts to things that he never expected anyone to see. And uh, there's a scholar uh, named Michael Drought, a professor of Old English, but also is the editor of a journal called Tolkien Studies. He refers to many of these references as textual ruins. So think of when you're watching the Lord of the Rings film and they're walking by a ruined castle and no one says anything about it. You just see them walking by ruins. Tolkien was doing this quite literally in his text. There might be a reference, a quite famous one is um, Aragorn brings up a line about the cats of Queen Beruthiel. Well, you scour the appendices, you scour all sorts of different sources, and you never find out who Queen Beruthiel is. He never wrote a backstory. He just made this reference. Now, done clumsily, this can feel like someone just making something up in a fantasy way to make it feel bigger. But Tolkien is doing it with such deliberate focus that it creates the perception of depth, even when he hasn't actually given you any context. Hmm. To me, you know, what he's doing also is he is imbuing every little creature or even every little object with agency so that even if he just mentions an object like the sword in one story or one book, 
he's able to take that back up in other stories. So it's a really interesting approach, I think, to writing or to creating anything. It is. It requires a level of attention to detail that I think a lot of authors today don't want to pay to the objects and people and places they're imbuing. But Mm -hmm. I think a big part of why that happens for Tolkien was his obsession with language. He was a linguist. He was a, a what's called a philologist, which is studier of the history of language. So as opposed to being a true linguist by today's standards, where he's looking at the phonetic sounds and things of that nature, he's looking more at the history and the cultural interplay of language. So he started well before writing any stories, he started making languages. And this looked like Elvish, namely. Are you familiar with the ring cycle of Richard Wagner? Yes, yes. He hated the comparison, but it absolutely has to be made. Not even similarities to the the story itself, but Mm -hmm. just the endeavor that both men were trying to create this self-contained world in a way. So Wagner called it the Gesamtkunstwerk. And in a way, you know, I feel like Tolkien was doing something similar just in imagination and through literature. Both Wagner and Tolkien were very interested in mythology and creating kind of adaptations of mythology. And I would say Wagner was very interested in language as well. I mean, I think he was primarily interested in perpetuating the German culture and German language. But, you know, I think that they're very comparable. One doesn't even have to talk about the similarities in in story, like I said. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The unfortunate thing is in wanting to advance the German culture on the world, he kind of embraced the pre-fascist mentality that then really co-opted a lot of his stuff. Now, Tolkien's work has unfortunately been co-opted by a lot of white supremacists and and fascists of this time and, and during his time as well. But he was approached by German publishers, and this was, you know, in the mid-30s, and they wanted to confirm that he didn't have any Jewish heritage. And he wrote a scathing, also hilarious letter back, basically saying, while I do not have any, you know, ancestry of that noble heritage, I wish I did. Basically a smack in the face to to the white supremacists and the fascist Nazis of the time. So just a great mm-hmm. little tidbit. Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, how was it particularly kind of co-opted? Tolkien early in his writings, pre-publication of anything, had the notion of creating a mythology for England and Northwestern Europe. And as such, all of the coded language that we have today overlaps with that. And so a lot of folks who believe in a fascist ideology will embrace this in a similar way to the way the Third Reich did with plenty of mythologies and folklores. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Let's go back to the Unfinished Tales really quickly. So can you talk about maybe one story in particular, or maybe even a specific line that stuck out to you in a story? So while the value of the unfinished tales is innumerable in terms of providing context for all of the ages of Middle Earth that he wrote about, my favorite stories are... Once again, today's episode is part one of two, so please be on the lookout next week for the conclusion to this conversation. If today's title interests you, 
please consider purchasing a copy from the bookshop.org link in the show notes. Buying from here supports local bookshops and this podcast. The music heard on What Are You Reading is from the album Wallflower by percussionist Julian Loida. If you liked what you heard today, please consider following and leaving the show a good rating and review, as this helps us reach interested listeners. If you have extra feedback or an idea for a title or genre you'd like represented, you can contact me using the email address in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, happy reading! Happy reading!